Catholic. I'm your host, Matthew Arnold, for Virgin Most Powerful Radio. And today we're going to be answering the question, is traditional Catholicism a sect? Also going to take a look at the latest push for women's ordination, which comes from a source that you might not expect, and for an even more unexpected reason. All that's coming up uh, a little later. But first, as always, the readings for the next Sunday's Mass, upcoming Sunday Mass, in the extraordinary form, and that'll be the fourth Sunday after Pentecost, starting with the Epistle, which is taken from the book of Romans, chapter 8, verses 18 through 23. I consider that the sufferings we presently endure are not worth comparing to the glory to be revealed in us. Indeed, creation itself eagerly awaits the revelation of the children of God. For creation was subjected to frustration, not of its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in the hope that creation itself will be freed from its slavery to corruption and share in the glorious freedom of the children of God. As we know, the entire creation has been groaning in labor pains until now. And not only creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait for our adoption as children, the redemption of our bodies. That's the word of the Lord. Now, as we know, sin has caused all of creation to fall from the perfect state in which God created it. The world is in bondage to death and decay so that it cannot fulfill its intended purpose. But St. Paul reminds us that one day all creation will be liberated and transformed. Until that time, creation itself waits in eager expectation for the resurrection of God's children. Now, as Catholic Christians, we see the world as it is, decaying physically, spiritually infected with sin. But Catholics, above all others, should not be pessimistic. For we have something far greater than mere worldly optimism. We have the theological virtue of hope. We have hope for future glory. We look forward to the new heavens and new earth because God has given us his word. For centuries, modern men have put forth various visions of an earthly utopia, a novus ordo seclorum, a new world order. And the result has been constant war and death and misery on an unprecedented scale. But we, we few, we happy few, we band of brothers, we do not fall for the false promises of the world. We do not put our trust in princes, that is, politicians, men and women, in whom there is no salvation. On the contrary, we wait in joyful hope for God's new order, which will free the world from sin and sadness and sickness and death and all evil. In the meantime, the Catholic Church goes with Christ into the world to heal it one soul at a time, who band together as the Church militant, empowered by the grace of God to resist the evil effects of sin in the world. Our hope rests on the promise that we will be resurrected with glorified bodies like the resurrected body of Christ in heaven. And we have the foretaste here and now, the, the pledge, the first installment of future glory, the Holy Spirit, as a guarantee of our participation in the resurrected life. And there's no better consolation under the, the many crosses and afflictions that we bear 
than the thought that all the troubles of this world are nothing compared to the glory to come. As St. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4.17, our temporary light afflictions are preparing us for an incomparable weight of eternal glory. Therefore, according to the Venerable Bede, even if we had to bear for a while the very pains of hell, it would not seem so hard if by doing so we might merit to see Christ in his glory and to be added to his saints. And that's no nonsense. Now, the gospel for the fourth Sunday after Pentecost, that is taken from Luke chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. One day, as Jesus was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, with people crowding around him to hear the word of God, he caught sight of two boats at the water's edge. The fishermen had gotten out of the boats and were washing their nets. Getting into one of the boats, the one belonging to Simon, he asked him to put out a little way from the shore. Then he sat down and taught the crowd from the boat. When he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, Put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. Simon answered, Master, we worked hard throughout the night and caught nothing. But if you say so, I will let down the nets. When they had done this, they caught such a great number of fish that their nets were beginning to tear. Therefore, they signaled to their companions in the other boat to come and help them. They came and filled both boats to the point that they were in danger of sinking. When Simon Peter saw what had happened, he fell at the knees of Jesus, saying, Depart from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. For he and all of his companions were amazed at the catch they had made. So too were Simon's partners James and John, the sons of Zebedee. Then Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid. From now on you will be catching men. When they brought their boats to the shore, they left everything and followed him. <clears throat> Thus far the words of the Holy Gospel. Now the object of this miracle, which Jesus worked only for Peter and the other disciples, was twofold. First, like all the other miracles, it was meant to increase and confirm the faith of the disciples. And second, it was meant to prepare the disciples, especially St. Peter, for their work as apostles, which was symbolized by the miracle. You know, through the great catch of fish, Jesus is saying to his disciples, look, just as you now put out into the sea and, and cast in your nets at my command and, and made this extraordinary catch of fish, so in the future you will fish for the souls of men in the sea of this world, and you will have the same great success as apostles that you've just had now as, as, as fishermen, bringing thousands of souls into the kingdom of God, that is, the church. So the miraculous catch of fish typifies the apostolic work of the church of Jesus Christ. The sea is the world. The fish are the men living in the world. The boat is the church with Peter and his successors at the helm. Peter steers the church, which we call the, the bark, that is to say the boat of Peter, and with the help of his companions, the apostles, casts the net by preaching the doctrine of Christ, and by holy baptism receives into the church those who will believe. See, our Lord Jesus Christ to this day remains in the bark of Peter, right, in the holy Catholic church, 
teaching men and bringing them to salvation through her with the help of the successors of Peter and the apostles, the popes and bishops. A scripture says that Peter's little ship was in danger of sinking. And that signifies that the church will face many perils and persecutions. The tear in the net through which many fish escaped means that many souls will be lost to the church by schism and heresy. And then we have the first catch, which which Peter made as a fisher of men, right, on the day of Pentecost. And that was also extraordinary, with 3,000 people being baptized that day. And then after his second discourse, when he had cured the lame man, the the number of those baptized amounted to 5,000. See, this, this transformation of ignorant fishermen into fishers of men and the subsequent conversion of the world by them is one of God's greatest miracles. To this very day, the successors of St. Peter continue to send forth fishermen into all parts of the world, you know, in in as much as it is the Pope who confers the, the power and jurisdiction to the bishops and priests and missionaries to teach the truth of Jesus Christ and to sanctify souls by communicating his grace through the sacraments. Also, you can look at the virtues of St. Peter in this story. Faith, number one, he was a professional fisherman, fished all night and caught nothing. You know, and if you've ever, if you, if you know anything about fishing, you know that it's better to fish at night than it is, you know, when the fish are near the surface than it is uh, in the heat of the day. But, but he didn't argue with our Lord. And so he showed a second virtue, which is obedience by putting back out to sea just because Jesus asked him to. And he had humility. He said, Depart from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. And because he humbled himself, our Lord exalted him and called him before all the others to be a fisher of men. And then finally, we see the love of Jesus because they left everything and followed him. I often talk about how uh, the following of Christ is a quest for virtue and perfection. And while we don't need to forsake everything the way that Peter and the apostles did, we still have to follow the example given to us by our Lord if we would like to be with him and the apostles in heaven. Now, Vatican II referred to this, this quest as the universal call to holiness. It is the great theme of the imitation of Christ, the, the medieval spirituality of Thomas Kempis, which became the most popular Catholic book in history after the Bible, of course. Peter himself says in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 21, Christ also suffered for us, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. So in other words, the, the person who wants to be a true Christian, who wants to be an authentic Catholic, must not only believe in Christ, but imitate his virtues, his love of God and neighbor, his obedience, his humility, his meekness, etc. And that's no nonsense. All right, I think we are off to a good start. When we come back, we're going to be asking the question, is traditionalism a sect? You know, you probably know I I make a personal distinction between being a traditional Catholic and a traditionalist. But uh, today we are going to uh, find out what it is about traditional Catholicism that sets it apart and how people feel about it. That and more when we come back with lots more no-nonsense Catholic right after this.
Catholic. Welcome back to No Nonsense Catholic. Is traditionalist Catholicism a sect? This is an article that was on Crisis Magazine's uh, website written by a Derek Taylor, Ph.D. And I mentioned before the break, as you probably know, I make a personal distinction between being a traditional Catholic and being a traditionalist. But this article uses the term indiscriminately to describe anyone who prefers the traditional Latin Mass. And the article begins, you often hear the accusation that Latin Mass going Catholics are schismatic, that they hold themselves aloof from other Catholics in the belief that they constitute the true church. And this from a papal document, he says. Now, and this type of accusation, whatever the source, is usually based on the traditional Catholics' alleged opposition to Vatican II, or his refusal to attend the Novus Ordo Mass, or, the, or to accept the new Mass as valid. Well, I am living proof, along with many uh, members of the traditional Latin Mass communities that I visited all over North America, that this is, generally speaking, a nasty caricature. Not all trads are created equal. You know, not all not all traditional Catholics are traditionalists. And by the same token, you know, some traditionalists are mean or sarcastic, as a quick trip to social media can confirm. But that's also true of Novus Ordo Catholics and Protestants and Evangelicals and you know, et cetera, et cetera. The point Dr. Taylor makes is that in his opinion, there's nothing especially wrong with these traditional Latin mass communities and that there's nothing wrong with their theology or that the Latin Mass somehow makes them schismatic by osmosis. Nor, he says, is it their backwardism, whatever that is supposed to mean. <laughs> backwardism being the latest of Pope Francis's neologisms uh, meant to attack those attached to the traditional understanding of the faith. Now, this is all well-covered ground. But what made the article stand out for me is that Taylor identifies the problem with traditional Latin Mass communities presumably including those within diocesan parishes that also celebrate the Novus Ordo, he's looking at the problem from a sociological rather than a theological standpoint when he uses the, the uh, word sect. In sociological terms, he says, traditionalist groups amount to a sect. Sociologists of religion define a sect as a small evangelical group which recruits its members by conversion and which adopts a radical stance toward the state and society. Whereas a church, again, he emphasizes this is in uh, sociological, not theological terms, whereas a church is part of the establishment in whom membership is a given and beliefs are, accost are accommodated to the surrounding society, a sect is a group self-selected for its level of commitment. In this case, he says, converts to the Latin mass or other aspects of Preconciliar Catholicism. Okay. He further reckons that this higher level of commitment may account for a traditionalist being perceived as uncharitable to outsiders. He says, in a small community where everyone is fully committed to its ideals, this naturally produces greater militancy. In this type of community, everyone is competing for status by trying to be purer and more committed than their already highly zealous peers. Purity spirals and a contempt for those who don't measure up are universal, but they are doubly intense in such types of settings, religious or not. Now, th this is painting with a broad brush, and, and perhaps it's more valid when applied to uh, traditionalist groups that are outside of full communion with the church. 
But I can tell you that the, the Catholics who attend the beyond standing room only traditional mass at my diocesan parish are not Puritans, nor are they competing to show how much more devoted they are to some particular notion of being Catholic than their fellow parishioners. Uh, in other words, not all Catholics who assist at the traditional Latin mass do, for, do so for the same reasons. To, su to suggest that is, is every bit as narrow-minded as the preconception that all traditional Catholics oppose Vatican II. You know, back in the before Samorum Pontificum era, you know, in the days of the John Paul II indult mass, I knew an older Jesuit priest who, who warned me about attending the traditional Latin mass. You know, I assured him that our parish was part of the diocese, that the priest was in good standing, that he regularly celebrated the Novus Ordo Mass as well as his once a week traditional Latin Mass, and that the whole affair, uh, where you know, he and the, the community, where we were all of us in full communion, as they say, with the local bishop. But he replied with, with typical Jesuit empathy, those people, meaning Catholics who prefer the old Mass, those people are crazy, he said. For all you know, you might be sharing a pew with a set of acantists. And I replied, you know, Father, with due reverence, I don't believe any self-respecting set of acantists would attend a mass at a diocesan parish at all. But I can say with virtual certainty that when I attend the Novus Ordo, I am sharing a pew with people who are fornicating or practicing artificial contraception or both, who are uh, effectively pro-choice, at least in their voting, and who routinely receive Holy Communion without any regard to the state of their soul. Now, which group really poses the greater spiritual danger? Which is having a greater influence on the church? Uh, you know, a tiny splinter group who thinks there's no valid pope, <laughs> or the group that represents the majority of so-called practicing Catholics? Now, taking all that into consideration, Dr. Taylor thinks that, you know, that it may seem, he says, unfair that a community would not embrace their more committed members rather than trying to eliminate them en masse just because some of them are obnoxious. But, he says, it's more complicated than that. Dr. Taylor quotes a deacon friend of his as believing that the church must be more concerned with helping its less committed members rather than accommodating you know, the, the traditionalists who are already zealous for the faith. He says... I would bet this kind of thinking is common among the bishops and leaders of the church. To them, the church is the church of everybody, and catering primarily to the most zealous Catholics seems, well, sectarian. He says when critics accuse traditionalists of being schismatic, I think they're probably misnaming their concern. What they're really objecting to is that traditional Catholics are outside the mainstream of what most people experience as Catholicism. And the problem with this line of thinking, he says, is that the Catholic Church uh, has not always and everywhere been part of the establishment. It certainly wasn't in, in the pagan Roman Empire of the first century, or today in you know, the, the Africa or Asia of the 21st. Also, it's in countries with an historic Catholic establishment, you know, formerly known as Christendom, where opposition to the traditional mass is greatest. Uh, like Italy, he says, where the, the bishops were instrumental in getting Pope Francis to ban the traditional mass. Whereas in places like England and North America, where there isn't a socially powerful Catholic establishment for it to threaten, the traditional Latin mass is flourishing. And then he brings up another interesting point. He says, it is noteworthy 
that the sociological sectarianism of the trads is not unique to them, not even in the church. There are other groups who fit that sociological description as a sect whom the hierarchy not only tolerates, but encourages. One such community is that of charismatic Catholics. You know, now I have often pointed out how the traditional Catholics and the charismatics, who liturgically couldn't seem further apart, actually have a lot in common. Uh, a more conservative approach to the Holy Scriptures, and a less critical approach to the Holy Scriptures, and, and a lively appreciation of the supernatural, just being just a couple of them. And I myself have been uh, identified as a Trentecostal uh, for being a traditional Catholic speaker and author who does not scruple to appear at events organized by charismatic Catholics. And yet, as Dr. Taylor points out, the charismatics have been favored by every pope since Paul VI, whereas traditionalists are targeted for removal. What gives? And then he, he answers his own question by offering a simple and I, I think valid answer. He said, Francis and his backers think traditionalists are opposed to Vatican II, whereas they think the charismatics represent one of the fruits of Vatican II. In other words, traditionalism old, charismaticism new, old bad, new good. And he comes to the conclusion that the powers that be, quote, cannot go on pretending that the church is still part of the fabric of society in the way that it has been in the past. He says, the church cannot survive when 70% or more of its members reject basic doctrines like the real presence, or its teaching on marriage, or when large numbers of its theologians teach the same. Elites in Western societies, he says, grow more hostile to the Catholic Church and to Christianity more generally every day. And this will only grow worse as the years pass. In other words, the church is going to have to become more like a sect in sociological terms in order to survive. And then he goes on to quote a, a, a share a quote from Joseph Ratzinger from 1969. You know the one about how the church of the future will become smaller and poorer, but also purer and stronger as a consequence. But, uh, but Dr. Taylor says that that was not what he wanted when he converted to Catholicism. He says his conversion was influenced by the church's history and its impressive contributions to Western civilization, and me too. And so he says, I did not relish the idea of being part of a small sect hated for my beliefs or being made to suffer for them, though I knew that might be required of me at some point. But now, he says, the time has come. The church's only other option is to make preparations for its path to completion, quote-unquote, as so many church leaders seem intent upon. Now, path to completion, that's, that's the euphemism that the Sisters of Charity have chosen to, to describe their preparations for the imminent demise of their 200-year-old religious order, right? An, another victim of, of post-conciliar Catholicism. On the contrary, he says, becoming more like a sociological sect Number one is where our hope lies. Number two, because this state of affairs is not permanent. And number three, that the church has not only survived, but thrived, both as part of the establishment and as a militant minority throughout her long history. Remembering, of course, that our ultimate destiny lies beyond this world. 
Uh, he concludes that today the church has a choice to make, one that seems clear to him, and, and he quotes Deuteronomy 30, 19. This day I have set before you life and death, blessing and curse. Therefore, choose life that you and your descendants may live. So he answers his own question. Yes, the trads are a sect, and the church at large should imitate them, at least in their radical stance towards state and society. Trusting in her divine spouse, let her choose life and not death. Well, that's Derek, Dr. Uh, Derek Taylor's two cents. And, and I think there's something to this, of course. You know, I've often pointed out that traditional Catholicism is the, the only sector in the church, uh, at least in the West, that's growing rather than shrinking. And I suspect that it will continue to grow despite ongoing persecution, simply because liberal Catholicism doesn't beget more liberal Catholics, it begets non-Catholics. And when we come back, we're going to take a very brief look at the same question, not from a sociological standpoint, but from a theological one. That and more when we return with lots more No-Nonsense Catholic. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Welcome back to No Nonsense Catholic. You know, uh, we just spoke about Dr. Taylor's view that in sociological terms, uh, the question, is traditionalist Catholicism a sect, can and should be answered yes. But that's in sociological terms. And to answer the theological question, we must first define the word sect in theological terms. According to Father Hardin's Modern Catholic Dictionary, a religious sect is an organized body composed of those who dissent from an older established form of the faith. Now, traditionalism is a pejorative label that has been unjustly applied to all Catholics who embrace beliefs and practices that for the better part of 19 centuries were rightly understood as Catholicism. In other words, once upon a time, and for a very, very long time, what we call a traditionalist Catholic was simply a Catholic. Now, this understanding of the words Catholic and Catholicism can be certainly and undeniably established by recourse to centuries of official church teaching. Therefore, theologically speaking, the question, is traditionalist Catholicism a sect, must be answered with a resounding no. It would make more sense to ask, is the conciliar church a sect? And be advised that conciliar church, that's, that's Pope Francis and company's term, not mine. I'm still among those trying to promote the hermeneutic of continuity, right? the understanding that there, there is no pre- or post-Vatican II church, but only the one holy Catholic and apostolic church. In other words, as, as Benedict XVI taught so clearly, Vatican II did not substantially change the Catholic faith. Vatican II was not a complete break with tradition, but has only been falsely interpreted that way with what he called the hermeneutic of rupture. Although it must be frankly admitted that the, the many and various changes that have taken place since Vatican II have tended to be justified precisely by an appeal to the false interpretation that Vatican II did in fact change Catholicism into something other than it was before. And that's the point. If there is a conciliar church or a post-Vatican II church, which is distinct from what was understood always and everywhere by everyone as Catholicism, 
then it is that conciliar church that has broken away from the older established order of faith. Therefore, if the so-called post-Vatican II church exists, it must be the sect, or words have no meaning. St. Thomas Aquinas put it succinctly, no surprise there, he said, hold firmly that our faith is identical with that of the ancients. Deny this, and you dissolve the unity of the church. And that's no nonsense. Okay, moving on. Uh, you know who Rick Warren is, I suppose, the recently retired pastor of the super successful evangelical Southern Baptist megachurch known as Saddleback Church here in Orange County. He, uh, he was the subject of an article I saw last week by Casey Chalk called, Do We Need a Data-Driven Church? And by the way, the, the URLs, links to all of these articles that I'm mentioning uh, are in the show notes. Well, I didn't know this, but uh, celebrity pastor Rick Warren's Saddleback Church recently got booted from the Southern Baptist Convention. Right, Southern Baptists are, are the largest Protestant denomination in the country. And, and a week ago Tuesday, Warren's at the annual gathering of the SBC pleading with the 12,000-some-odd delegates there to reverse their decision to expel Saddleback Church. So what did Rick Warren do that was so egregious as to get the, the uh, mega-successful Saddleback Church expelled from the Southern Baptist Convention? Answer, he violated the denomination statement of faith. How? By ordaining several female pastors. The issue was women's ordination. Warren said uh, last March, we'll never fulfill the Great Commission with half the church on the bench. I believe millions of Southern Baptist women's talents and spiritual gifts are being wasted, unquote. <clears throat> now, this is essentially the argument offered by the German synodal way regarding the Catholic Church. The difference, of course, is that the Sacrament of Holy Orders was instituted by Jesus Christ, not some fundamentalist denomination statement of faith, and the Catholic Church managed to spread over the entire earth without a single female pastor for 2,000 years. Now, Warren's argument, and this is the interesting thing, his argument is that the SBC's policies on female ordinations have hindered its ability to evangelize, and that Southern Baptists have allowed their faith to become too politicized, which poisons the wells, so to speak, with unbelievers who, he says, now equate evangel or evangelicalism with the Republican Party. Uh, uh, Chalk's article quotes a, a video posted earlier this month wherein Warren warned that Southern, Southern Baptists, quote, have stopped making the main thing the main thing. You won't change the culture through laws. You're not going to change the culture through politics, unquote. Well, I agree with him on that. But it does not follow that the biblical injunction to, you know, put not your faith in princes suddenly means let's ordain women. But let's face it, Warren has an impressive track record in the sense of, of sheer numbers. By employing what Casey Chalk calls a managerial technocratic approach to evangelism, Warren leveraged population and demographic data to inform his church planting strategy. He read management theory to understand how effective businesses attract non-customers. He popularized an informal style, preaching in Hawaiian shirts and sandals. 
His 120-acre church, from which he recently retired, was designed by theme park experts. Unquote. Even his best-selling book, uh, The Purpose-Driven Life, which has sold an, an incredible 50 million copies, according to Casey Chalk, it, it, quote, reads like an evangelical version of Stephen Covey's The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. The, and, and I should mention that Warren came under fire from biblical scholars for using, in that one book, 15 different Bible translations, right? selectively choosing whichever translation of, of whichever certain verse would best support his case. But, you know, as I said, you have to admit he's been effective at a statistical level at last year's Southern Baptist Convention meeting, he cited his church's record, uh, you know, it's his churches, his community, his ecclesial community, if you will, their record of 56,000 baptisms, 27,000 overseas missionaries, 9,173 home Bible study groups, and 1.1 million pastors trained. Sorry, friends, he said, that's more than all the Baptist seminaries put together. Now, given his method, it's not all that surprising that Warren has defied his denomination's policy on women's ordination, right? That's just that's just the latest trend, sociologically, right? Uh, according to what Casey Chalk identifies as his data-driven approach to Christianity, how many more souls might be saved, quote-unquote, if women could perform baptisms and preach from the pulpit? It's like he's telling his, his fellow Southern Baptists, hey, dudes, we could double our investment here. All we have to do is change a doctrine. <laughs> and he insists, by the way, that, that he only changed his mind about women's ordination, women in, in ordained ministry, after three years of careful Bible study. In that time, he says, he somehow discovered that women can serve in any ecclesial role, despite his own church's long tradition, and even acknowledging that the Bible seems to offer contradictory language on this topic and affirming that he, quote-unquote, respects other interpretations. And this, of course, this is why there's so many different Protestant denominations teaching so many different doctrines, even though they all claim to follow Scripture alone as their sole rule of faith. Because in practice, what that really means is that regardless of denomination or theology or statements of faith, the individual Protestant decides for him or herself what best aligns with the plain meaning of the Bible. Ultimately. Each Protestant is his own pope. And as a result, uh, some denominations ordain female pastors, others don't. Some denominations baptize babies, and others don't. Uh, still others reject water baptism altogether. Some denominations denounce homosexuality as a sin, others positively affirm it as good and, and, and uh, legitimate lifestyle. And they all claim that their teachings correspond with the plain sense of Scripture. Now, has Rick Warren honestly considered the Bible's teaching on women's role in ministry and come to the conclusion that there's no obvious biblical injunction against ordaining female pastors? Well, Casey Chalk says that, uh, quote, to a point, I can believe it, because the Bible does not contain the explicit injunction, women cannot be clergy. <laughs> However, there are good biblical reasons for, for believing that they cannot be. I would suggest that the fact that there are no women clergy in either the Old Testament or the New Testament might be your first clue. Thankfully, as a Catholic, you and I do not have to wonder about this. 
you know, as a faithful Catholic, you know, and I know that women can't be ordained pastors because the magisterium of the church, which Christ made the official interpreter of sacred scripture and sacred tradition, tells me so. Consider what I believe to be an infallible exercise of the Petrine ministry, St. John Paul II's Ordinatio Sacerdotalis. The Holy Father proclaimed in the clearest possible terms, quote, I declare that the Church has no authority whatsoever to confer priestly ordination on women, and that this judgment is to be definitively held by all the Church's faithful. Roma locuta est causa finita est. Rome has spoken, the matter is settled. And of course, he's not doing anything except insisting on what the Catholic Church has taught about the sacrament of holy orders from the very beginning. Now, I know that, that, that fundamentalists and evangelicals feel uh, an urgency for evangelization that's different from that of the Catholic Church. Because they believe in, in the heresy of once saved, always saved, they, they put a, a great emphasis on what we would call the initial grace of conversion. For them, it's the whole ball of wax. They think, you know, once you accept Jesus into your heart as your personal Lord and Savior, you're saved. And, and nothing can, can make you lose your salvation. So they tend to think in the short term and not in the long term the way Catholics do, who believe, as Jesus said in Matthew 24, 13, that the one who perseveres to the end will be saved. I think the point here is that you don't change your doctrines in order to get the numbers up. And that's no nonsense. All right, we'll be back uh, with more uh, No Nonsense Catholic right after this. Stay with us. Welcome back to No Nonsense Catholic. Yeah, okay, so uh, just to, to finish up with this uh, women's ordination kerfuffle in the, the uh, Southern Baptist Convention, I, I said right before the break that you don't change doctrines in order to get the numbers up. And that's true for Catholicism as well. As Mother Teresa used to say, God doesn't call us to be successful, but to be faithful. And St. Paul put it uh, best, I guess, in Second Thessalonians 2.15. Therefore, brethren... Uh, stand firm and hold fast to the traditions that you've been taught, whether by word of mouth or by a letter of ours. Also, the idea that, that Christian communities should ordain women in order to get their numbers up is a flawed argument anyway, because it fails to take into account uh, the data regarding the mainstream Protestant communities that have embraced women's ordination and homosexual clergy and blessing same-sex unions, etc. Did such doctrinal changes help them to grow? On the contrary, they're virtually dying out. And it's not different with the Catholic Church. Look, the jury is in. Just look around you at what 60 years of updating has accomplished. From mass attendance to vocations to catechesis to marriages and baptisms, by virtually every measurable standard, the Church is in sharp decline and has been for decades. Now, does anybody really believe that doubling down on even more radical changes, which is arguably what created the crisis in the first place. Does anybody really believe that's going to help the situation? I mean, if, as the German Snodelway has suggested, if the church should actually change the unchangeable, as if the Pope 
and, and the bishops even had the authority to change the matter of one of the sacraments instituted by Christ. Why would anyone believe that the results would be different for us than for our separated brethren who have embraced those radical changes only to witness the acceleration of their self-destruction? Holding fast to the deposit of faith is what it means to be an authentic Catholic Christian. It is precisely that fidelity that leads to the only success that really matters, to know, love, and serve God in this world and be happy with him forever in the next. And that's no nonsense. Now, you know, let's take a look at an example. Uh, there was no Corpus Christi procession in Rome this year. Okay, the Pope was in the hospital after all. However, on the Thursday before Corpus Christi Sunday, that is to say on the day that Corpus Christi uh, traditionally fell ever since the Middle Ages in the old calendar, there was a special event in St. Peter's Square, the World Meeting on Human Fraternity, hashtag not alone. Catholic World Report called it a sad exercise in pop solidarity. You see, rather than the traditional Eucharistic procession, St. Peter's Square was host to this Vatican-sponsored event that was absent any mention or even image of Jesus Christ. Well-known Catholic writer and retired professor of theology Larry Chapp, who attended this event, wrote a scathingly snarky piece for, for Catholic World Report, which, if you like that sort of thing, you can find on their website. And again, the URL will be in the, uh, in the show notes. It was kind of entertaining in a perverse way, but with or without the snark, it's a sad commentary on what the institutional church is up to, or, or perhaps I should say fallen to, at the highest levels today. Dr. Chapp reports, Quote, devoid of any mention of Christ as savior of the world, but long on the gaseous buzzwords of anodyne bureaucratic secularity. The end result was predict predictably disastrous and pathetic. And the fact that those in power at the Vatican seem so smitten with the therapeutic dreck of their own bland mucilix adjournamento of Christless Christianity that they could not see the fiasco that was looming Says, all, uh, says about all one needs to say of the spiritual acumen, not to mention the Catholic faith of so many currently ensconced in power there, unquote. <laughs> I wonder how he really feels. And Dr. Chap was in Rome and observed the preparations in St. Peter's Square as well as the event itself. And he says, what struck me initially was that it was clear the Vatican was expecting a very large crowd indeed. For days leading up to the event, workers were busy setting out thousands of chairs, erecting barricades, building tents and booths. Banners were everywhere declaring the need for inclusion and solidarity, as well as green agriculture. But nowhere did one find a single banner that mentioned Christ, as one might expect from a Vatican-sponsored event. He goes on, it must have been quite a disappointment to Cardinal Gambetti and his curial courtesans that hardly anybody showed up for the big event. And the few people who were there were mostly folks who were wandering across St. Peter's Square in flip-flops and shorts, looking quite exhausted as they returned from a day of experiencing those parts of Rome that still speak in stone and image of Christ and his church. You know, the Vatican reportedly spent 700,000 euros on this event, which included uh, performances by uh, the great opera star Andrea Botticelli and the avant-garde, and I understand mostly nude, dancer uh, Roberto Bull. And that's more than three quarters of a million dollars. Okay? And, but the published photos of the, of the event tell the whole story. 
Three out of four quadrants of the chairs set up in the square were less than a third full, and the fourth quadrant was completely empty. Dr. Chap concludes, I could not help but contrast in my mind the emptiness of St. Peter's Square on that day with the overflowing crowds of some rather traditional Catholics in France who were on a Eucharistic pilgrimage from Paris to Chartres and in the many other public Eucharistic displays that took place all over the world this past week, <coughs> excuse me, on the Feast of Corpus Christi. Uh, the Rorati Celi blog commented, almost five hours of talks, performances, videos, and the signing by the Vatican Secretary of State, Cardinal Pietro Parolin, of the Declaration on Human Fraternity, yet another sheet of empty, overblown words where, fortunately, the name of our Lord does not even accidentally appear. Quote, each man is my brother, every woman is my sister, always. We want to live together as brothers and sisters in the garden that is the earth. It is the garden of fraternity, the condition of life for all. Five hours of performances, yet another declaration, and the square as empty as the chatter about human fraternity. Prove that the faithful are looking for something eternal, and not for the secular silliness. That they are finding it in the traditional Latin mass and traditional Catholic belief and practice is demonstrated by the record numbers of Catholics making pilgrimage on foot from Paris to assist at a traditional mass at Notre Dame de Chartres. And even this, after the publication of Traditionis Custodes and the ongoing persecution of the traditional Latin mass, you know, they predict that in, in just a couple of years, France, first daughter of the Catholic Church, in France, there'll be more traditionalist priests than diocesan priests. So I suspect Ratzinger was right. I think the church will get smaller and the faith will get stronger. Catholicism, traditional Catholicism isn't a sect. Traditionalists, so-called, have not broken away from the church established by Christ because they continue to worship as their fathers did. For 20 centuries, the traditional mass was not only at the heart of the church, but at the heart of Western culture. It, it nourished countless generations, uh, including countless saints. This is what gave birth to Christendom and spread the faith to the Americas, to Africa, to Asia. And why? Because this beautiful and unchanging mode of prayer, these unambiguous doctrines, proven fruitful and sanctified by time, right? That mass faithfully expresses Catholic, those unambiguous Catholic doctrines. And therefore it continues to this very day to lift many hearts to God for his greater glory and for the salvation of souls. And that's why Catholics who assist at the traditional mass are far more likely to know and hold the doctrines of the church. But it is, it is precisely that, holding fast to the Catholic faith in all its fullness, that makes you a traditional Catholic, even if you cannot regularly assist at the tra traditional Latin Mass. And that is no nonsense. All right, well, we've made it through uh, another episode. I want to say thank you so much for being with me uh, today. And I also want to say a quick word speaking of the traditional Catholic faith, about uh, what went on last Friday at Dodger Stadium. You know, uh, we had uh, 5,000 people show up for the rally of reparation there, making reparation for the 
uh, outrages against the Sacred Heart, um, at, you know, with the honoring of the uh, that anti-Catholic hate group known as the Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence. And, um, you know, I've seen some of the mainstream media coverage, no mention of a bishop being there, no mention of the praying of the liturgy, liturgy of the Sacred Heart or the Chaplet of Divine Mercy. It's all, you know, we understand that the... Um, you know, these certain far right people showed up and this and that, and they blocked the entrance to the uh, Dodger Stadium and, and so forth. And not, not a word of the prayerfulness, not a word of, of the of the the Catholic uh, uh, ambiance of the event. Uh, but we know that that is really what it was, that it was what they call, you know, peaceful and prayerful and, and more than that, effective. And Bishop Strickland has said that, you know, we need to do more of that kind of thing. You know, we are the church militant. It's up to us to contend for the faith, to go out into the world and and share the good news, to explain to people, you know, as as St. Peter said, to explain to them the reason for the hope that we have in us. And that also is no nonsense. And while we're on the topic, I want to thank you, first of all, uh, for your prayers, all of your prayers, and for your your financial support of uh, Virgin Most Powerful Radio, and to mention that we were um, the one of the, or the, really the main um, group that was responsible for what actually took place at Dodger Stadium. We're the ones that, you know, thanks be for to Johnny Romero that got all the permits, that arranged things with the police, that uh, rented the, the PA equipment, and and a flatbed truck to serve as a platform from which uh, Bishop Strickland was able to speak and give his blessing and so forth. And all of that stuff costs money. And so we are very, very thankful for your prayers, but I want to ask you if it's possible for, even if you're already a monthly donor, if it is possible for you at this time to make a special contribution to help defray those costs, um, we will be, well, you'll have my eternal gratitude and of course you can always be assured of our prayers you know we have mass every day at the sacred heart chapel and your intentions those of you who support us are lifted up to the altar every single day and uh, and i just want to say that that uh, the eternal rewards right the the fringe benefits of supporting an apostle like this are as they say out of this world all right. So again, thank you for listening. I uh, hope to do this again next week. And I want to ask you to you know share these podcasts with your friends. Let them know about Virgin Most Powerful Radio, and you're going to be helping us and supporting us in that way as well. So until next time, thanks for listening, and may God richly bless you and your family.